Well, there's a good and a fantastic. We'll take that. And uh, i got to play with this. Oh, it'll take at least a minute. It's hard for me to say hello in, in, in under a minute, that's for sure. And uh, Raymond, while uh, I'm playing here with the music stand, you can be getting uh, GarageBand up and fired and ready, right? Good. How are you tonight? Listen, I'm so glad uh, that each of you are here. And I'm also glad for the promise of Jesus that we're two or three get together, that uh, he's here in our midst. You know, that's one of the amazing promises that Jesus gives us is that um, uh, he's actually promising to be everywhere, right? It's, uh, we don't think of that necessarily as a divinity claim, but, uh, but I believe it is. I believe that's uh, part, of, uh, part of what uh, the Lord was trying to indicate there. Um, on uh, Vineyard Saturday nights, we have uh, been doing a five-week study on the place of prophetic ministry in the church. And I don't know if that phrase sounds foreign to you or if you're very comfortable with that phrase. Uh, you know, I don't know what our individual church backgrounds are. So uh, this is the fifth and the final installment in uh, a series of teachings on uh, prophetic ministry. And... Um, I, for one, have really benefited from it. We've, uh, uh, we've had uh, uh, several different teachers. And as soon as I get my iPhone to do what it's supposed to do, then I'll be able to play. This is an amazing thing, technology. Here we go. Watch this. Play slideshow. And up it comes. And I'm controlling that from right here. That amazes me. That absolutely amazes me. Um, But as I said, we've been doing a five-week series, and um, here's the truth, is that uh, our society at large, like the U.S., but also our local town, uh, needs the church to step up and to engage in prophetic ministry. Um, Our society needs a place where they can go and hear from God personally and corporately. The church needs to be able to, to hear from the Lord and to speak the encouragement and the uplifting and the edification that God has for people. Uh, it's, uh, it's something that's really, really needed. And uh, uh, if, you know, you're just coming in for the first time tonight and uh, you're thinking, great, I'm on week five of a five-week series, have no fear. I'll give you a quick review. Uh, Andrea Michael spoke for us first, and uh, she gave us this really important uh, message that it's God's nature to speak. You know, when in Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, how did God create the world? He spoke. It's his nature to speak. From Actually, before the beginning ever began, God's been speaking. And uh, that, was, uh, that was Andrea's message, is that it's in the nature of God to communicate with his creation. And that's us as individuals. It's not just nature or the skies, you know, or the earth, but that he wants to communicate with us uh, as well. And um, he, he not only spoke creation into being, he's still speaking now. That's who he is. It's what he does. It's part of his nature. And uh, she had one particular line that I wrote down in my notes that just really bears repeating. And she said, there's a difference between knowing God's word and knowing God's voice. And it's a huge life-giving difference. How many of you all have ever met people who knew the Bible or could quote, you know, verbatim out of God's word, 
But, you know, they were like clueless as to the love, the mercy, the grace, the majesty, the grandeur, you know, just the, you know, the awesomeness of who God is. So there's a real difference between knowing God's word and knowing his voice. And that message in week one of our series was really, really important because a basic understanding of the prophetic begins with hearing. You know, we think of prophecy and, you know, there's all kind of associations that we come up with that word prophetic. But the most important component to understanding the prophetic is that the prophetic begins with hearing. And we can move in confidence in prophetic ministry, not just the guy up front with the microphone. All of us can move with confidence in prophetic ministry because it is God's nature to speak. So so that was week one. Um, then in week two, Justin uh, Harden spoke to us, and uh, he gave us really practical advice on both receiving and giving prophetic words. Uh, in fact, around here, where we've, we've done our best to try to explore what the Scripture has for us about prophetic ministry, sometimes we just shorten things down to, uh, to our own little catchphrases. We say, well, I have a word, but the... the, the you know, that's, that's just us engaging in our own particular slang. The, the important aspect of uh, prophetic ministry that uh, Justin ministered on is that what we have to give is what we've received from God. If God is speaking, we receive what he has to say, and then we give it to other people. And, uh, and he quoted out of Revelation where it says that the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Maybe you've heard that verse before. The testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. And he underscored then that that means that Jesus, his life and his actions and everything that he did was a living example for us of what prophetic ministry is all about. So you go, okay, it's a strange kind of phrase. I'm not used to whatever prophetic ministry means. If you want to know what prophetic ministry was like, you can look at the life of Jesus, not just the things that he talked about, but the things that he did as well. The life of Jesus is an example of prophetic ministry. And then uh, uh, that's with respect to being able to receive the the, the words that God has for us to give to other people. And then with respect to, to giving those words, Justin reminded us of three really important points. Justin reminded us that God is love. 1 John 4, chapter 4, verses 7 and, uh, and 8. God is love. And it's not a coincidence that 1 Corinthians chapter 13, you know, you've been to weddings, you've heard 1 Corinthians chapter 13 read. It's not a coincidence that it falls in between chapter 12 and 14. I'm a math major, right? <laughs> chapter 13 falls in between 12 and 14. Well, 1 Corinthians 12 is about the gifts of the Holy Spirit. And 1 Corinthians 14 is about the use of those gifts in the local church. It's no coincidence that Paul didn't have ADD, you know, the Apostle Paul who wrote that letter. He didn't have ADD and just go off on some riff about love. You see, the essence of prophetic ministry is to communicate God's love and care for other people. And so that's really, really important. If you want to know what are the guidelines for being able to speak or to give prophetic ministry, you just simply have to ask this question. What would the love of God do? What would the love of God do? And Justin even read out the passage. Love is patient. Love is kind. It's not envious. It's not proud. It's not boastful. It doesn't keep a record of wrongs. It believes all things. 
bears all things, endures all things, yet hopes all things. That's the message that we've been entrusted with, with respect to prophetic ministry. So love should be the, uh, the, the guiding star. And then most encouragingly, because again, it's not just about, quote, religious professionals, is that if you are capable of love, then you are capable of prophetic ministry. It was, it was the, for me, the high point of the second week of our, of our message, and that is that if you are capable of love, then you're capable of doing prophetic ministry because love reflects the heart of God. So that was week two for us. And then in week three, Cliff um, Ingalls talked about risk-taking in prophetic ministry. And I, and I loved this. I, I, I loved his message. He talked about the fact that faith is expressed in the risks that we're willing to take on behalf of God. And um, Cliff's here tonight. Cliff, I want you to know, I wrote down one sentence, and I'll take a year to explore it because it was so good in your message. Cliff said that because of God's grace, because of grace, we live from his favor and then out of our desires. Because of grace, we live from favor and out of our desires. But if we live by the law... Then we're trying to live for favor and out of our performance. And I'm tempted just to like preach that whole message again. You see, because of grace, we are freed up to live from God's favor and then out of the desires of our heart because we know we have the favor of God. But if our view of God is that he's judgmental and that he's harsh and that he's upstairs keeping score, then if we live by law, then we live for the favor of God, like we're trying to earn the favor of God, and then we end up living out of performance. What a big difference. If we can be convinced of the favor and the grace of God, then that frees us up to take risks uh, in prophetic ministry. And Cliff said that risk-taking is about living before our Father with the confidence that he wants us to grow. Now, we have some folks here that are parents and other folks that probably hope to be parents someday. He said, He said that risk-taking is about living before our Father with the confidence that he wants us to grow so he's not going to punish us for our mistakes. You know, which parent, which father or which mother is going to punish a child for stumbling while they learn to walk? No, when a, you know, like uh, we've had three children. All three have successfully learned to walk. That's good because they're 23, 21, and 7, Right? But when our children were learning to walk, you know how toddlers are. You know, it's like, it's like an accident waiting to happen. They'll take four steps and then boom, over they go. And around our house, when they would fall over, we'd cheer, right? You know, it's because we didn't want them to freak out. You know, if we were concerned, then they would cry. But, you know, when the toddler's first learning to walk, we would cheer. And if we're convinced of the Father's heart for us, it frees us up to take risks because we know that he wants us to succeed and he's not going to punish us for our mistakes. So again, I know this is the third time I've underscored it, but that's important if we're going to lay hold of the idea that we are called to live and to move in prophetic ministry. You know, if we think prophetic ministry is only about, you know, some, you know, big superstar or a televangelist or somebody that's got a TV show, then we think, well, it's, you know, it's only about special gifting. But if we can live from the grace and favor of God, we don't have to worry about performance, and we know that he's on our side. And then last week, Andrew Ward talked about obstacles to prophetic ministry. 
and uh, I, I wasn't here. I was in Charlotte, North Carolina, but I had a chance to listen to his message on the audio archive. And by the way, all the messages from either Saturday night or Sunday mornings are on our audio archive. And Andrew gave a detailed, practical message that was filled with advice that was geared towards dealing with our own doubts and insecurities and encouraging us to practice in prophetic ministry. Does that sound weird to you? I mean, maybe you're just getting used to the phrase prophetic ministry and then, you, and then the idea that, well, you can practice in prophetic ministry. But, you know, why not? Uh, doctors practice. Just because they give them a degree doesn't mean they know everything. Lawyers practice. And so as we are given a ministry of reconciliation, as we are the ones who are, are given the privilege to be able to hear from the Lord and be able to speak to other people, well, why shouldn't we practice as well? And so Andrew really dealt, I think, in, in, a, in the most practical way possible with the idea of how do we deal with our doubts and how do we practice in prophetic ministry. And so then that leaves me tonight to address like popular both conceptions and misconceptions about what is prophetic ministry. What is a prophet and what is prophesying and, you know, uh, uh, anybody that has hung around Christian circles or the Bible or even just, you know, watch late night television, you know, we, we all carry with us both conceptions and misconceptions about prophetic ministry. So that's what I want to deal with uh, tonight. I want to talk about true and false prophecy. And I picked a particularly encouraging picture of a guy getting stoned, right? Not, not like he was toking, not that kind of stoned, but like he's being pelted with... It's like he's being pelted with stones uh, because, you know, he has somehow messed up, right? Um, And uh, that's, uh, you know, I'm here to announce there will be no stonings. There are no stonings on the schedule. It's not our custom or practice to, to stone people. Neither is prophetic ministry about the apocalypse or about apocalyptic visions or about reading the newspaper and then having some doomsday clock that moves towards midnight and that the message of the church is the end is near. Uh, it's nothing about that. But rather, I want to get across that prophetic ministry should be normative in the life of the church corporate and in our individual lives. So let that one sink in. In my life, in yours, prophetic ministry should be normal. Uh, many, many years ago, a Chinese believer named Watchman Nee wrote a, a touchstone book called The Normal Christian Life, in which he made a distinction between what is the average Christian life, what most people settle for, or what is the normal Christian life that the Scripture describes to us as normative. And that's what we're after, is the idea that prophetic ministry, hearing from God and speaking what we hear, that prophetic ministry should be normative. And when you consider that hearing from God is to hear about his grace, his mercy, his forgiveness, and his kindness towards an earth that is alienated from him, and that that's, what, that's, the, that, that's the sort of things that he's breathing out day after day, and then speaking that, what church shouldn't operate in that? But the distinction between just happy talk or positive mental attitude is that true prophetic ministry is supernatural in nature because we're hearing specific things that God is saying. So church life without prophetic ministry misses out on the supernatural 
encouragement and the supernatural direction that God wants to give. So you could think, okay, yeah, God's in for grace. He's in for mercy. He's in for all the good things. And so why don't we just engage in happy talk? Why don't we just pretend that all of life is the glass half full and then we're doing prophetic ministry? No, that's, a, that's an earthbound response. But a church that considers prophetic ministry normative will supernaturally hear from God and begin to speak what God has to say right now in 2010, right now in Campbellsville, right now, tonight, in, you know, just, you know, the group of us that's assembled. That's what prophetic ministry is, is all about. And so I want to talk about what it is and what it isn't, what is true and what is false prophecy and what it means to engage and to practice in that ministry. And to do that, uh, the teacher in me, uh, I I think that we've we've got to go back and do just a little bit of heavy lifting from the scriptures. So are you ready? Are you ready to do a little bit of heavy lifting? Okay. Because what I want to talk about first is the New Testament's view of what true and false prophecy or what a true and false prophet is all about. Um, I'm in my 50s. Uh, I met the Lord Jesus Christ when I was in high school in August of 1970, that long ago, yes. And in the 70s, there was a really formative book that made the New York Times bestseller list. It jumped the boundaries of the Christian ghetto, and it was widely read in the 1970s by a guy named Hal Lindsey, in which he presented a picture of Old Testament prophets as being almost exclusively predictive and if every one of their predictions didn't come true then they were false prophets in fact one of the opening sequences in the book tries to describe a guy getting away from a group of people who are going to try to pelt him with stones because this guy has made a predictive prophecy and his prediction didn't come true and the the first thing that i want to do is i want to talk about the the true biblical nation nature of prophecy because that book was so formative in my generation that, uh, that that's what people think the Old Testament is, quote, filled with, is prophetic books that predict the future, and I can't understand it. You know, I, the names are weird, the dates are weird, and, you know, there's people who pretend to interpret things. But what if the, the Old Testament prophets were more about speaking forth what was on God's heart and what was on God's mind than they were about foretelling the future? And that's, that's where we need to start, is that even the Old Testament view of prophecy is about forth-telling instead of foretelling. And, and that means to speak forth what's on God's heart and what's on God's mind. Let me give you an example. So there's an Old Testament prophet named Amos. Amos lived during a time when the rich were getting richer, the poor were getting poorer, and the rich were exploiting the poor, even to the point that a guy would be a day laborer, but he wouldn't get his wages at the end of the day. And, you know, the the business owner would say, tough, sue me. But the poor person had no standing in court and couldn't get to court. And so almost the entire message of Amos was about that the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob loves justice and hates injustice, and that there is a day of reckoning in which the people that are on the bottom will be lifted up by God and the people that are on the top are going to be called into account. Amos's book was about justice, and it was about the fact that the God of heaven loves justice. And he didn't really 
predict anything other than that if God is loving and God is just, there's going to be a day where there's a great reversal. And that's what the book's about. Then you jump forward into our day and age, and there was a Southern Baptist preacher named Martin Luther King Jr., who read the book of Amos and he saw African Americans who were at the bottom of the rung and being treated with injustice. And he began to quote from Amos. And so when Dr. Martin Luther King stood on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial in 1963 and said, let justice roll like rivers through every, every uh, city of our land, he was quoting Amos. You see, the function of the prophets is to tell you what God feels about things and what God thinks about things. And it makes their prophetic books alive for us even in our day. Now, make no mistake, there are some predictive prophecies. So uh, let me quantify it for you. In the Old Testament books, there's this much prediction and this much description of how God feels and thinks about things. It's true. There are predictions like that the Messiah will be born in Bethlehem or that he would be born of a virgin. There are predictions in the Old Testament. But far more importantly is those prophetic books of the Old Testament are telling us about God's heart and mind. And how about today? Don't we need to know what God feels about things and what God thinks about things? And thank goodness we have the inscripted word. I mean, we've got, we, we understand a little bit of what God thinks and feels through the inscripted word. But as Andrea said, it's not just knowing his word, but it's hearing his voice today. What does God feel about our community, about my life in particular? What does God feel about those things? And so for the last 40 years, pretty much my entire evangelical experience, for the last 40 years, evangelicals have emphasized foretelling. And as a result, then their definition of a false prophet is somebody that gets the prediction wrong. Okay? That is antithetical to what the New Testament defines as a false prophet. Now, on the list that I've... It's a true and false prophecy. Did I lose my... You know what I did? I lost my web feed from our wireless. So I'm going back to getting it. Let's see. There we go. Okay, so the New Testament view of what a false prophet is is actually pretty surprising. You'll notice up there that we've got New Testament scriptures at the bottom, 2 Peter and the book of Jude and the book of Revelation. And do you know that in all three instances in which the New Testament refers to a false prophet, all three times it's referring to a guy named Balaam. And you can find his story in Numbers chapters 22 and 23 and then the end of his story in chapter 31. How many of you all, I'm just curious, have ever heard of Balaam? You've heard of the guy with the talking donkey? Yes, Balaam and his ass. Right, you've got it. And, you know, what people, what people most remember is that he's the guy driving the poor donkey who decides to sit down and not move, and then he beats the donkey with a stick, and then the donkey says, what you doing to me? I didn't do anything to you, right? But the true story about Balaam, I mean, that's all true too, but the true story about Balaam is that he was uh, not a, a part of the people of Israel. He was from a land called Midian, okay? He was from a land called Midian, and he had an ability, even though he was an outsider to the people of the covenant, to hear from the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and to speak. 
And the people of Israel were getting ready to invade the promised land. And one of the kings inside the promised land said, you know what? If we could find a prophet who would curse those people, then they would be truly cursed because God does whatever the prophets say. It was a really screwed up version of what prophecy was about. So this king of Midian goes with like this bag of money to Balaam and says, I will pay you a bag of money if you will curse the people of Israel. And Balaam says, well, let me think about it. And so that night he thinks about it and, you know, God speaks to him and says, don't do that. Don't curse my people and don't take their money. And so Balaam comes back to the king of Midian and says, keep your money. I'm not going to do anything. And the king says, what? Did I say a bag of money? I meant a whole boatload of money. And so he comes back again and says, won't you curse the people of Israel? And so Balaam thinks, man, that's a lot of money. He says, I'll make a deal with you. I'll take your boatload of money, but I can only speak what I hear God say. Now, God's already told him, don't go. But he says, I'll take your boatload of money, but I can only speak what I hear God say. So that's when he gets on the donkey and he's going to go to his gig to do the prophetic work. And uh, the donkey ends up seeing an angel with a sword drawn ready to kill poor Balaam. And the donkey is smarter than Balaam because the donkey doesn't want to go. The donkey says to Balaam, look, you better look out. There's an angel there. You're going to die. And the angel of the Lord says, look, you know, if you had gotten up to the top of the hill, I would have killed you flat out. And then Balaam, if you could imagine, says, oh, well, do you want me to go or not? Right? It's like, hello, God said, don't go. Hello, there's an angel with a sword ready to kill him. But he's thinking about the boatload of money. And he goes, well, do you want? And the donkey talked. Thank you very much. And the donkey talked. And he says, well, do you want me to go? And finally, God just says, look, go ahead. Knock yourself out. You know, third time God says, whatever. And so here's what happened. Balaam gets to the uh, prophecy gig and he says, essentially, this is the short version. Blessed are the people of Israel. Nothing's going to get in their way. And the king of Midian goes, ay, 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 you don't get it. You see boatload of money, curse the people of Israel we win. And Balaam says, well, I just told you, I'm only going to say what I hear God saying. And so the king says, well, try it again. And so Balaam says, all right. So he does whatever his mojo is. And he says, blessed be the people of Israel. They're going to kick butt and take names. And anybody that gets in their way is in a boatload of trouble. And the king of Midian says, no, 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 you're, you're, you're missing this. We're paying you a lot of money for this. In fact, you're probably not standing in the right place. This is actually in the text. The king says, come on over to a different location and maybe you will hear God differently. And so for a third time, Balaam goes, mojo, 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 blessed be Israel, cursed be anybody that gets in their way. And thank you very much for my speaker's fee. And he takes all the money and he goes home because he had told the king what? I'm going to prophesy, but it's only what I hear God say. Now, here's the amazing thing. The New Testament, 2 Peter and in Jude and in Revelation, show that Balaam is the archetype of a false prophet. Now, this is going to fry your circuits. Everything that Balaam said was true and correct. Everything that he prophesied was on the money, so to speak. Pardon me, okay? Everything that he said was right. 
And yet when the New Testament, when Peter and when Jude and whoever the insane person was that wrote the book of Revelation, when all three of them recognize what false prophets are about, they pick somebody who said true and right things and said that's the archetype of a false prophet. Because what Balaam did to make it up to the king was he said, here's what we really ought to do. What we ought to do is we ought to introduce immorality into the camp of the Israelites. We ought to introduce them to wine, women, and song. We ought to lead their hearts astray. And so Balaam also, not in a prophetic vein, but in a practical kind of political earthbound vein, said, let's get them to worship other gods. Let's get them to practice immorality. And he had absolutely no heart for the people of God. So to sum up, his prophetic words were accurate, but his heart was black as could be. The New Testament definition of a false prophet is someone who doesn't give a rip for the people who receive the prophecy. The New Testament definition for a false prophet is someone who loves money, recognition, and position more than the people who receive the ministry. Can you see where I'm going with this? The New Testament definition of false prophetic ministry is when it's all about the guy up front with the microphone, when it's all about the glory, the money, the girls, the sex, the drugs, the rock and roll, and doesn't care for the people who should receive the ministry. And I can tell you in 40 years of following the Lord, I've seen people who have tremendous gifting in the Holy Spirit whose lives were train wrecks. I'm not talking about train wrecks ready to happen. I'm talking about people who were currently alcoholics who could still do incredible ministry in the Holy Spirit. I'm talking about people who were cheating on their wives because they had a different woman in every town that they went to with their prophetic gig. And yet when they got on stage to do the preaching, they could prophesy. You see, true and false prophets is not message-oriented, it's person-oriented. The heart of prophetic ministry, like Justin shared with us, is love and care and concern for the person that's receiving the ministry. To the degree that we make the person an experiment, to the degree that we make the person the means to whatever it is that we want to get, that's the degree which we ourselves can engage in false prophecy. Does that make sense? Okay. And it's surprising because, in part, because of the kind of the evangelical legacy of making prophecy all about being predictive, we think that prophecy, if it comes true, it's true, and if it doesn't come true, well, then it's false. And amazingly, there are examples of God's prophets actually getting it not quite 100% right in both the Old Testament and the New. It's amazing. So now, in the church, what's going on? In the New Testament life, the emphasis for the prophetic ministry is on hearing the Holy Spirit and speaking what is heard. We've already covered that to, to a degree. But where prophecy belonged you know, only to the Old Testament prophets, in the New Testament, prophecy breaks out for everybody. Now, I've already referenced Numbers chapter 22 and 23 
That's where you get the story of Balaam. By the way, he gets killed in a battle in uh, Numbers chapter 31. But would you look with me in Numbers chapter 11, if you brought a Bible tonight? Because even in the Old Testament, the New Testament view of prophecy was waiting to break forth. The New Testament version of prophecy was waiting to break forth. So Numbers chapter 11 Moses is leading this group of people, and it's this massive group of people. And Moses is like, you know, the one and only leader. He's got his, he's got his older brother and his older sister helping him. But Moses tries to demonstrate that the goodness and the grace of God can operate through anybody. And so in Numbers chapter 11, starting in verse 24, I'm kind of dropping in in the middle of the story. He's taken a lot of heat. He's taken a lot of criticism. But in Numbers chapter 11, in verse 24, it says that Moses went out and told the people what the Lord had said. Okay, that's prophetic ministry. He heard from the Lord. He told them what the Lord said. But then he brought together 70 of the elders, and he had them stand around this tent of meeting, particular tent where the presence of God was strong. And then the Lord came down in a cloud and spoke with him, and he, and he took of the spirit that was on him and put the spirit onto the 70 elders. In other words, Moses wasn't just a one-person act. He had gathered 70 more people and the same Holy Spirit that had anointed Moses began to anoint the 70 people that were with him. Now, I love this part because this is what's looking ahead to how the church does ministry, the, you know, the church after the Lord Jesus. And when the Spirit rested on those guys, the 70, they prophesied, but they did not do so again. Look at verse 26. However, two men, whose, main, whose names were Eldad and Medad, had remained in the camp. They weren't a part of the club. They weren't part of the 70, had remained in the camp. They were listed among the elders, but they hadn't gone to the tent. And the Spirit rested on them also, and they prophesied. But they weren't at the tent of meeting. They were back among the people. Okay, And a young man ran and told Moses, because there's always one religious kid in the crowd, ran and told Moses, Eldad and Medad are prophesying in the camp. Prophesying in the camp. Even Joshua, Moses' right-hand man, who had been to Moses' age since youth, spoke up and said, Moses, my Lord, stop them. Tell them to shut up. But Moses replied, are you jealous for my sake? I wish that all of the Lord's people were prophets and that the Lord would put his spirit on them. What did Moses say way back then? I wish that all of the Lord's people were prophets. Two guys who weren't in the club, the spirit fell on them, and they began to prophesy the words of the Lord. And when somebody tried to rat them out like they're breaking the rules, Moses said, look, the Holy Spirit needs to fall on everybody. Do you see that? It's anticipating what's going to happen in the New Testament. So now that we've cracked our Bibles open, look with me in 1 Corinthians chapter 14. Because we get a remarkable window in 1 Corinthians chapter 14. We get a window into what church services were like in a New Testament church. There's this city called Corinth. Paul, the apostle, planted the church there. He didn't just plant the church but he actually pastored the church for 18 months. So this is a real work of Paul's that he had his hands on, okay? And 
after he's been Pastor Paul for 18 months, he moves along to plant some other churches. And when he does, when he does, he writes a letter back to them about how they conduct their meetings. That's what 1 Corinthians is about. Paul, the guy who planted the church, Paul, the guy, the guy who was their pastor for 18 months, is writing back to tell them how they should meet together. And in 1 Corinthians 14, here are some points that we see about ministry in the Holy Spirit and in particular in about, about prophecy in the in prophetic ministry in a New Testament church. We see that prophecy has been set loose in the church. Paul says this. He says that everybody in the church, you all in Southern speak, should earnestly desire spiritual gifts. It's in 1 Corinthians 14, verse 1. Everyone should earnestly desire spiritual gifts. And then he says, but especially that you should prophesy. So if you've been weirded out to this point thinking, gee, I've never heard of prophetic ministry. What's this about hearing from God and speaking to other people? When Paul was writing to this church in the first century, he said, everybody should desire spiritual gifts, plural. And he says, you should especially desire that you prophesy. And then... There are seven different occurrences where he talks about using prophecy to build up the church. And I've listed them here just on the strange or off chance that you might be taking notes. But here's the deal. In 1 Corinthians 14, in verses 3, he mentions twice about building up the church. And then in verse 5, and then in verse 12, and then in verse 17, and then in verse 26, and then in verse 31, he says that prophecy is to encourage and build up the people in the church. Can you get a picture of what church must have been like in Corinth? Paul wanted everybody to engage in prophetic ministry, and the object of that prophetic ministry was to encourage and to build one another up. He said, in fact, you should especially desire the gift of prophecy. Maybe you've been taught this. Maybe you've been taught, oh, yeah, spiritual gifts exist, but you have to figure out what your gift is. I know people who have even taken surveys. Take this survey, and at the end of the survey, it will tell you what your spiritual gift is. And here's Paul in the Scripture saying, you should desire spiritual gifts, plural, and While you're desiring gifts, you can even point out the ones that you would like to move in. Earnestly desire spiritual gifts, especially that you would prophesy. And then to give further instruction, Paul says, the function of prophesying in a New Testament church is to encourage and build people up seven times, he says it. Let's look at verse 3. He says that everyone who prophesies speaks to men for their strengthening, encouragement, and comfort. You could even call that three times. Strengthening, encouragement, and comfort. That's what you do. And prophecy, let's, let's demystify it. Prophecy is speaking to other people so that you will strengthen, encourage, and comfort them. Okay? So prophecy is not, oh, a day is coming when I see terrible things. Does that strengthen, encourage, or comfort? Don't think so. Right? So, seven times in this chapter, and if you're taking notes, you can begin to look that up. And then, finally, in verse 30, in verse 39, 
he says one more time, as if we, you know, have already going to miss it. He says, therefore, my brothers and sisters, be eager to prophesy. And by the way, don't forbid speaking in tongues either. But let everything be done in a fitting and orderly way. So the chapter opens with the fact that we should eagerly desire spiritual gifts. The chapter opens with not only desire spiritual gifts, but that we should prophesy. And then the chapter closes with, you should be eager to prophesy. So let me just ask a question, because it's, you know, it's a nice informal setting on Vineyard Saturday nights. How many of you here are eager to prophesy tonight? We got like three or four hands that went up with certainty, and then a few hands like, well, you know, I guess I see it in the book. Maybe, yeah, right? Yeah, the, right answer, the right answer is always Jesus, yeah. The right answer is, is that when you come together in the church, you should be eager to strengthen, encourage, and build one another up. And you can do it in the natural. Oh, you look nice tonight. That's a lovely dress you're wearing. Or you can do it in the supernatural by hearing from God and encouraging people. And we have, in our 14-year history, we just have story after story after story of people whose lives have been changed because, as, as Cliff taught about, some people were willing to take risks and to speak things out. We're going to cover that. But before I go on to the next slide, let me just ask this question. It's not about the vineyard. It's about wherever church you might call home. What if everybody came to church eager to prophesy every time they came to church. What would the church be like if everybody who walked through the door, whether you got 20 or 200, if everybody walked through the door eager to hear from God and to speak what they've heard on behalf of someone else? Do you think church would be different than it is now? And I think the answer is yes. So what if everyone came to church eager to prophesy? Now, having done that, having said that, what if that means that the inmates get to run the asylum? What if we've just declared a complete holiday and said, anything goes, Jesus' name? That's, that's my prophetic word tonight. No limits in Jesus' name, right? Yeah. Well, fortunately, in this same chapter, and, I, and you know, how much can I do in 30 or 40 minutes talking to you guys? Fortunately, in this chapter, there are safeguards for prophecy. And we're going to break up and we're, we're going to try to engage in a little bit of prophetic ministry tonight. But here, here are just some of the cautions, the safeguards with prophetic ministry. And, and I really want to emphasize these, uh, whether, you know, whether this is your home church or somewhere else. I want to emphasize these. The first is that prophecy is a together gift. Prophecy is a gift that operates when you come together. If you just check out verse 26 in in chapter 14, it says, when you get together. Now, it doesn't get any more plural than that. When you all are assembled together in the same room. Prophecy is a together gift. It operates when God's people are meeting together. There There are other settings in which it might operate. But what we're looking at in 1 Corinthians 14 is it's a together gift. And I want to say this. If you come to this church or any other church and someone wants to pull you over to the side privately and say, I've got a word from God for you, and they've pulled you off to the side, I only have one bit of advice. Run. 
run. Prophecy is a together gift that needs to be exercised together. All right? You know, what if the word over to the side is, well, the Lord told me, you know, you're going to get cancer pretty soon, and so you'd better put your affairs in order. Right? And, and you might laugh, but I have spent in the 14 years that I've, you know, that I've been on staff here at this church cleaning up the messes of people who say, come over here. I've got a word. I didn't want to give it, you know, in front of everybody. This is just between me and you. The whole testimony of 1 Corinthians 14 for prophetic ministry in the church is that it operates when you come together. And so prophetic ministry should always be done out and in the open, okay? If you feel like you've got a word for somebody and, you know, maybe the meeting's broken up or something, tell your best friend, come over here with me and let's go give this word to somebody. But don't don't even ask. Don't look for somebody to give you a word private one-on-one because it operates when you come together. Does that make sense? I hope it makes sense because it's really important. Okay? Secondly, prophecy is about us speaking and other people judge the word. Did you know that? That prophecy is subject to the the considered judgment of other people? It says... In verse 29, you speak and let other people judge. Now, this is really important on two levels. Some people hear from God, and then they go, oh, no, that's too crazy. I could never say that. And they don't speak it. So who judged the word? The person who heard it. But that's not what the scripture says. It says, let the person who's prophesying go ahead and speak and let other people judge the word. So you might actually be hearing from God, but either because it's just too strange or because you don't understand it or because you're shy or, you know, because you got the last four prophetic words wrong. I don't know what. There's a lot of people who shut down prophetic ministry because they judge it themselves. The way prophecy works is you speak, others judge. That's the first part. The second part is, is that just because you've heard from God doesn't mean it's above the considered judgment of other people. You see, it's a safeguard. We speak the words in public and other people are able to judge them. So if I say, hey, Dusty, let's, you know, come with me. I want to give a word to that guy over there. And, you know, then I go over and I give the word and I say, well, the Lord's told me, put your affairs in order. You're going to kick the bucket really soon. Dusty can go, "Uh, wait just a minute. Just a minute, you know. He says, I'm a prophet in the New Testament church as well, or I prophesy in the New Testament church as well. And and Dusty would say, you know, I'm not quite sure that you heard from God on that. It actually says there in verse 29, our job is to speak, and it's other person's job to judge. Um, I visited Jack Deere's church a couple of years ago in Fort Worth, Texas. That's the guy who's coming in two weeks. Big conference here, Friday night, Saturday night, Sunday. October 22, 23, 24. Admission is free. Love offering will be taken. Open to all. Please come. Okay, commercial over. But I visited Jack Deere's church, and he brought up a couple of people uh, right after worship. They did their ministry time immediately after worship and before he preached. And so, you know, this young guy stood up, and, and, and he pointed to somebody who was sitting right in front of me, and he said, I feel like the Lord's saying, and then he kind of gave the word. And Jack, the pastor, 
was standing next to the guy. He's prophesying how? Together, open, and in public. And it was a really good word. It was really encouraging. But when the young guy finished prophesying, Pastor Jack Deere looked at the man and says, does that make sense to you? And the guy went, oh, yeah. He says, okay, well, if you have any questions, please see us afterwards. Doesn't that feel good? Doesn't that create a safe environment? You see, the prophet, the, the person who is prophesying, I don't want to use the word prophet, not like capital P, the person who is prophesying speaks, and other people judge the word. So it's a together gift, and it's not just, well, God told it to me, so I know it's got to be true. Have you met people like that? Oh, let God be true and every man be a liar. I've got to be faithful to what God told me. Well, in the New Testament church, operating in a fellowship meeting, prophecy is open and it's subject to the judgment, usually the judgment of the, of the people that, you know, are the spiritual authorities there. But it can be anybody. Make sense? It's public. Others judge. And then I really like verse 32 in chapter 14 because verse 32 says that you can control whether or not you speak. You see, in New Testament prophecy, there's no such thing of as I've got a case of the I can't help it. Some people have actually told me, oh, I know it's God because I just couldn't help myself. I know it's God because it wasn't me. I just couldn't stop. Have you ever heard people talk like that? You see, but verse 32 actually tells us that the spirit of the prophet is subject to the prophet so that we can actually choose to speak or not to speak. Or if somebody interrupts us, we can literally say, well, I'll hold on to that for a while. Maybe it's not the right time. So it sounds spiritual to say, I always know it's God because I just can't help myself. But actually, it's antithetical to the witness that we see in 1 Corinthians 14. The I can't help it does not validate prophetic ministry. The truth is, is that We choose to speak. We choose not to speak. And indeed, that's the kind of order that uh, that Paul is calling for there in uh, verse 32. Does that make sense? We're actually in control. The, the, The Holy Spirit doesn't overwhelm us. We hear and we speak. Okay? So this is what I wanted to talk about tonight, is that prophetic ministry is not validated just because somebody is anointed. Prophetic ministry is not validated just because it's true. Prophetic ministry is validated by the fact that character matters in our life. The fact that we, not, we must be controlled by love in order to minister to people effectively. And then prophetic ministry in a New Testament setting is usually exercised in a corporate setting. Now, there are some examples that I'm not prepared to talk about tonight where prophetic ministry is used in outreach or prophetic ministry is used outside the walls of the church. That's just another sermon for another night, okay? But within the church, prophetic ministry is a together gift that is subject to the judgment of others and that is under the control of the person who's speaking. Does that make sense? And it's most often not foretelling, and it is most often foretelling God's heart and God's mind. And don't you come some mornings or evenings just hungry to know what God feels or what God thinks? 
Does that make sense? Okay. We're going to give you one last story. It's from uh, Jack Deere's church. Uh, and uh, we, we actually have this message up on our audio archive um, where Jack Deere, he's, he's a Dallas Theological Seminary trained, Dallas Theological Seminary professor or assistant professor there. And, uh, and, and his posture towards prophetic ministry years ago was, well, this just can't be right. And, and he's very analytical. He's very intelligent. Uh, and, he, and he loves the Lord. And the Lord's brought him a long way. But he was actually attending a meeting in California where um, uh, his assignment that day was to go to Children's Church with another guy and to see if they could help with ministry. And so you got Dallas Theological Seminary trained professor, right? Specialist in both Hebrew and in Greek and in languages in children's church. And he thinks, well, I can handle a room full of kids. I love this story. I can handle a room full of kids. And so the first kid says, Pastor Jack, why is it that bad things happen to really, really good people? And Jack says, well, you see, a long time ago in the garden, and he goes into this really, really long explanation. You can see the kid's eyes glaze over. And, you know, at the end, he hasn't explained the question any more than when he started. And he said, you know, did that answer your question? And the kid went, uh-huh. And then the next kid said, Pastor Jack, you know, if God is all-powerful, then how come he just doesn't make everybody be good? And he says, Starts in on the same answer. A long time ago, there was this garden, and people had their free will and their choice. And these, you know, these eyes glaze over. And you know, after two answers like that to these little kids, little kids are smart. They quit asking questions, right? The guy who was with Jack Deere was really gifted in the prophetic. And Jack, you know, finally realized kids are done asking questions. He turns to the other guy and he says, "You got anything you want to say?" And the guy says, "Yeah." And he points out this little girl, you know, in the back of the room, and he said. You know, while Pastor Jack was talking, the Lord kind of highlighted you to me. You just kind of stood out. And I saw a picture of you in your room with your covers over your head in your bed. And you felt like God didn't love you. In fact, you, were, you had the covers over your head and you were saying, God, why don't you love me? God, why don't you love me? And the guy says to the little girl, did that really happen or did I just imagine it? And the little girl says, that really happened two nights ago. And the guy said, yeah, I thought it happened. He said, and one of the reasons I think that you had the the blanket over your head and you're going, God, do you love me or not, is that your daddy and mommy, are, are they having a hard time maybe talking about a divorce? And she went, yeah. And he said, I came here today to tell you that God loves you and that whatever problems your parents are going through, sweetie, it's not your fault. And we can pray for your parents, and maybe they'll do all right. But God loves you, and it's not your fault. And the little girl just starts crying. And so Children's Church breaks up. Jack Deere, seminary trained guy who tried to explain all the big theological questions, went up to the little girl and said to the little girl after it was over, he said, Honey, do you understand that God loves you? And she said, well, I didn't before today, but I do now. Now, how's that for prophetic ministry? Do you think that little girl went away encouraged and strengthened and built up? Do you think that no matter what the outcome was with her parents, 
that she knew that God saw her and that God knew her and that God loved her. So that's part of the very first week of our message. We can know the word of God, but we also need to know the voice of God. Okay? All right. Well, I've talked for a really long time, and I'm not sorry about it, so I won't apologize. If you need to go, I, I want to respect and understand that, but all, the, the whole purpose of Vineyard Saturday Nights is to engage in lab as well as lecture. And so what I want to do is I want to break us up into at least four different groups and have four different group leaders that will just simply say, let's ask God for a word. Take group leaders. You don't know who you are yet. Group leaders will take like 30 seconds, and then whatever impressions we have, we'll just share them under the guidelines that it's to build up, to cheer up, and to strengthen. No black clouds, no prophesying imminent death or destruction or doom. All right? And we'll be guided by love. Okay? Does that sound all right? All right. Here's what I'd like to do. Cliff, could I ask you to lead one group? Okay. Luke, could I ask you to lead a group? Glenn, could I ask you to lead a group? And Richard, could I ask you to lead a group? That be all right? All right. So here's what we're going to do. Don't worry about the tape on the uh, chairs and all. We're going to put Cliff over there in that corner. We're going to put Luke in this corner. Glad in this corner and Richard in this corner. We're going to pray a prayer. If you need to go, we want to respect that. But if you would like to both practice prophetic ministry and receive prophetic ministry, we can do what Cliff said. We can have the confidence that our Father wants us to mature and that he's not going to punish us for mistakes. If 1 Corinthians 13 is our guideline, how can we go wrong? 